You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing, who specialize in ultralight gear that'll take your tight line game to the next level. Maverick is offering a 20% discount right now for wet fly swing listeners. You can head over to maverickflyfishing.com and use the coupon code MAVERICKWFS20 right now. That's M-A-V-R-K-W-F-S-2-0 to get 20% off your next order and the lightest and most unique Euronymph rod right now. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash Deddy to grab your in-house flies today. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy. D-E-T-T-E to support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the world. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Ann? I'm doing great. How are you this morning? Great, great. I'm, th- I'm happy that you were able to put some uh, time aside today to dig into a uh, very important topic that um, you know I think everybody's been hearing about for quite a while. We're going to talk about the history of the Klamath Dams and what's going on right now, and and also American Rivers because you have a 50 years of celebration this year. You've been doing some great things. I want to talk about that a little bit. But before we jump into Klamath, um, take us back real quick on conservation. How did you get into this world, and how did you find yourself uh, working for American Rivers? Well, I found myself getting into rivers by literally getting into rivers. When I was a college graduate, I think I had an experience a lot of people might identify with. I was just totally lost. I had no idea what I wanted to do at all. I was an English major, actually, and I'd studied journalism as well. And my mom gave me a six-day rafting trip on the Middle Fork Salmon in Idaho. And it was my first time rafting. It was my first time camping. This was not something we did at all as a family growing up. And I just felt like on that trip, you know, anybody who's been on a multi-day river trip might have experienced just, you know, you, you really start getting into the pattern and the rhythm of the world around you and the river around you. And I just felt like my soul had been plugged in and, and then I wept from takeout the whole three hours off the trip because they just thought, oh my gosh, that was it. That was my chance. And now the trip's <laughs> over and I'm going back. And and then I realized I really didn't have to. And so fast forwarding, I ended up becoming a whitewater raft guide because that was mm. the thing I knew. I was like, well, that's where this passion was triggered. And so that's where I'm going to start and let's see where this goes. And 
so I did that for a few years throughout the Sierra Nevada and California and, and a few international rivers as well. And, and then ultimately decided I needed a more sustainable career path than being a seasonal worker who lived in the back <laughs> of my car. Right. And so then I started thinking about, well, you know, how can I keep investing in my love of rivers um, as a professional choice? And that really first led me to science because I realized I just really wanted to understand them. I wanted to understand how they moved. I wanted to understand how they lived. I wanted to understand how things that depend on them lived and what those key relationships were about. And so I ended up spending about 15 years just really digging deeply into the science of rivers and ultimately living my, or leading my own research program at the UC Davis Center for Watershed Sciences. And I was really, really happy doing that until about a year ago, folks may remember this series of reports comes out every four years, the IPCC kind of state of the climate science reports come out. And, and so in February 2022, a new set of reports was going to be released and scientists were being gathered ahead of time so we could be given some messaging about just what to say about it all. And I remember getting on the call that was specific to water and fresh water and and the lead of that call said, okay, we have three messages we really want you to take away. And I, I was so ready <laughs> to get into the science. And he said, okay, message number one, there's no good news. Mm. Yeah. I, had, I was like, okay. <laughs> and then he said, message number two, we are locked into climate change for the next 30 to 50 years. You know, even if we did everything we could starting today, we're not going to be able to turn this around any more quickly right. than that. But then message number three was, there's still a chance. There's still a chance. I got off that call and I remember just literally sitting with that information and asking myself, what am I doing <laughs> running a science program? Was that enough? And, and realizing that you know, 30 to 50 years was probably the rest of my life and I was never gonna see the other side of this. And I just had so many feelings, you know, grief and despair and, and all the things that I think a lot of people do feel. And then I realized I had to really reframe that question. It wasn't so much what was I doing, but what was I specifically doing and emphasizing, you know, what gifts, what talents, what potential, what did I have to give that I wasn't using already in the work I was doing? And I realized that while I loved my science program, I loved my research, I actually knew enough to be doing more. And that's when I started looking for an opportunity in conservation. And I knew a few things. I knew I loved rivers and I knew I wanted to stay connected with that passion. I knew climate change was the thing I wanted to dedicate the rest of my career to working on, that I had to think of this not so much as a race or even a marathon, but more of a relay in that my job was to just kind of move this work as far down the field as possible so that when I handed it off to the next person, I could do it feeling confident. I really did all that I could. Um, and that was actually a concept I got from Anita Hill, who was describing that as her journey through the civil rights era. And I just remember thinking about like, that's such a beautiful, beautiful concept that there is no finish. There's just forward momentum. Anyway, so knowing that I really started looking for the right opportunity, the right organization, and at the same time, American Rivers was looking for a director for their California program. And, and another thing I knew was that I just, I love California. I love its rivers. You know, we have 189,000 miles of rivers in the state. It's the most wow. rivers in any state except Alaska. 
I know that California is just a biodiversity hub, not just in mm-hmm. um, North America, but throughout the world. And I also knew that work that focused on conserving rivers not only helped the environment, but helped people too. And that is another piece of conservation that I really felt important. It was something important to focus on. Like I, It wasn't just about this idea of the environment and people being separate, but how the environment and people are fundamentally connected and wanting to care for people in that way as well. And so those three pillars were really central to how American Rivers is centering their work. And, and I was really fortunate in the end that they agreed that I was the best candidate for this job as well. And so now here I am. Wow, that might be the best intro <laughs> we've had. I think I had, I think I had goosebumps twice on that. And uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's a cool story because I think, like you said, the messages. You know, we've had a lot of conservation episodes here, and you know, there's this. You know, really, conservation episodes in general. Even this one right now, people are listening and they're expecting like a negative message. You know, because conservation, right? Climate change. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, what can we do? But you said like number three was you know hope. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of those things that people need still to realize like, hey, you know, we're in a, you know, whatever you call it, aridification in the Southwest, we got this stuff going on, but it's not the end of the planet. And there's some still some things we can do. Um, And I also love that you mentioned Anita Hill, you know, with the civil rights and and that as well. So, I mean, there's so much here, you know, we can't cover it all today, uh, like normal, but um, what I want to hear about is maybe talk about Klamath and what's going on there and use that as maybe a way to explain the work that American Rivers is doing. So do you want to take us back there real quick and just talk about, I know there's a long history. In fact, I'm not sure if how long this project's taken, but it's been a while to get to where we are. So take us into Klamath. What somebody that's brand new that doesn't know what's going on here, give us the, you know, kind of the high level and then let's dig in a bit. Sure. Well, I love introducing people to the Klamath through an exercise in imagination because I often ask people to just imagine a river and what do they see? And and more often than not, what they see is, you know, headwaters that happen in some like jagged high mountains and lots of snow melt. And then it tumbles through a steep, you know, series of cascades before coming out into a lovely fertile valley plain. And then I say, great, now flip that upside down. And that's the Klamath. The Klamath starts in a high elevation, but very flat plateau kind of area. It used to be, you know, just tons of wetlands and water that didn't so much come from snowmelt, but it came out of the ground. You know, this is a river that's born from a geology based in volcanoes. And so it's really, um, you know, those rocks are full of holes. Water moves through them very easily. And as it's moving through them, it's absorbing all of these minerals and nutrients from the rocks so that when it merges from the ground into our rivers, it's like superfood. It's like river superfood. And that is one of the reasons why the Klamath has historically been so productive, especially for salmon. And then as it moves out of that high, flat, you know, plateau, then it starts tumbling down through the Klamath National Forest into California. And that's when you get some of these really steep and gorgeous canyons. Um, It's just stunning. And then ultimately empties into the Pacific Ocean. So along the way, it also has lots of different and important tributaries. and, And each tributary is like a special child of the Mother River. And so we have you know, like the Shasta River, which 
again, gets a lot of its water, not so much from snow melt, but a lot of it just comes straight out of the ground from the glacier that melts on top of Mount Shasta, infiltrates into the ground, takes like 30 to 50 years to move through that space, and then emerges wow. through this river as, yeah, just aquatic superfood. And so it just boasts one of the most productive salmon fisheries historically in the whole Klamath. And so to put it in perspective, the Shasta River provided about 1% of the total annual flow of the Klamath, but about 50% of the salmon. So, oh, wow. you know, when I say it's just salmon superfood, it really is salmon superfood. But then we have other tributaries like um, the Scott River just downstream. And, and that comes, a lot of that's from snowmelt and rainfall runoff. And it's a, you know, a granite basin. And so it's got a totally different chemistry, totally different hydrology. And that watershed right now currently supports the largest cohort of wild coho salmon we have in the state. So you just have these incredibly important pieces of the Klamath that all come together to make this one amazing living system. And it was an incredibly productive living system until about 1918. And 1918 is when the first of a series of hydroelectric dams were built on the upper portion of the Klamath. And among those dams are Iron Gate Dam, Copco 1, Copco 2, and J.C. Boyle. Those are the four dams that are currently in the process of being removed. But what happened when those dams went into the river is a couple of things. One, as I'm sure many folks can imagine, it just blocked access to hundreds of miles of upstream habitat that is necessary for certain life stages of salmon and, and other fish living in the system. And so when we cut off, you know, access it's it's not so much a barrier as much as it is you know if you think of a river as a living system just like a body as a living system if you cut off a part of it it's hmm. you know more it's not good like more systemic things start failing than just that one part and and the same is true for rivers the other thing the dams did though is you know i think a lot of people can understand the impact they have in cutting off upstream habitat but they also in some ways damaged downstream habitat and that happens in a couple different ways one again you know thinking of rivers as living systems the fundamental process that drives that living system is a river's flow the amount of flow the patterns of flow and the timing of flow and dams completely interrupt that and so every living thing that depends on those patterns and cues suddenly doesn't have the information it needs to to respond and work in the system the way it's supposed to. The other thing dams do is it changes the quality of water. In the Klamath, this was particularly dire because, you know, as you remember, I said the headwaters, it's not so much rainfall runoff or snow melt, it's water coming out of the ground and it's water coming out of the ground that's incredibly nutrient rich. And when nutrient rich water enters a river, it can be salmon superfood. When nutrient rich water enters a reservoir, it tends to grow algae. And in the Klamath, that algae also contains a neurotoxin that then can be taken up by other organisms in the system and just kind of perpetuate that infection and disease all through the system. So you have blockages to headwater habitat, you have degraded water quality, degraded flow patterns downstream, and all of this added up to really create an ecological catastrophe. And so salmon runs that used to be some of the most abundant on the West Coast of the United States now are at less than 5% of their historic numbers. And that's across all species of salmon, not just one. So, you know, this has impacts 
again, not just to the river and not just for people who love the concept of salmon, but for the communities who actually live there. You know, first and foremost, we have the federally recognized and other native tribes who are in the Klamath Basin who see salmon not so much as a resource, but as a relative. And so insofar as salmon reflect the health of their family and their life, you know, they're really in critical care right now. And that has been incredibly just devastating to these communities and nations. And then you also have, you know, other, I would say more Eurocentric industry, like, you know, Pacific salmon fisheries. A lot of those fisheries have been closed year after year after year because the salmon returns just simply can't support a commercial harvest. So I think it's also really important when we talk about recovery, we're not just talking about, well, we have enough fish in the system to replace themselves, but we're really talking about enough fish in the system that, you know, are available for harvest, that are growing and supporting the communities that identify with them culturally. And, um, and then we're also thinking about, you know, the other folks in the system, like the farmers. And I think the issue of farmers and fish, it's such a convenient message to put those communities at odds. But, you know, I've done a lot of on the ground work with ranchers and farmers, specifically in the Klamath. And a lot of them will tell me what they want to see are salmon. They want salmon back and they want to know how to get there because they see themselves not so much as extractors from the land, but as stewards of the land. And so when rivers are dying, so are their lands. And for farmers, especially in the Klamath Basin, it's not so much large-scale industrial farms as it is multi-generational settler families who maybe homesteaded in the 1800s. They see themselves as fifth, sixth, seventh generation families. And so this isn't just a lifestyle, it's a heritage that they're trying to honor and protect as well. So we have a lot of people in the Klamath who are really, I would say, devoutly invested in the health of the river, the health of salmon, um, and are working very hard to get there. But these dams, you know, sometimes a problem is just too big. And so, you know, the tribes have really been advocating for the removal of the dams almost since the day that they were conceived. Hmm. So, you know, I know a lot of the attention has gone to this story in the last 20 years, the momentum that's grown in the last 20 years. But I would say it really took, you know, 80 years for everybody to really get on board with the advocacy that tribes were already doing for decades and decades. And um, in the early 2000s, the, the catalyst really was this massive fish kill. We were in a familiar situation. There was a drought. There wasn't enough water for everybody who wanted to use it in the different ways it was needed. And ultimately, too little water was left in the river. And with too little water that also had poor water quality, you know, because of what's happening in the dams, there was just a massive fish kill. And you can imagine the devastation of walking up and down this canyon and just seeing, you know, fish, dead salmon floating bank to bank, mile Jeez. after mile after mile. It was just devastating. Right. Endangered salmon, right? Yeah. Endangered salmon. Exactly. Coho salmon are listed. Um, you know, spring run salmon are almost entirely extinct. Chinook, fall run Chinook salmon are up there too. You know, they're not listed, but they're not doing well. <laughs> you know, I don't want to give the impression they're a vibrant community. Right. 
And in that moment, you know, that also combines with this opportunity with the dams because hydroelectric dams operate with a license that needs to be renewed every 30 to 50 years. And these licenses were up. And so we all started to really ask ourselves, is now the moment? Is what these dams are contributing to the community really so valuable that it's outweighing all of the damage that's also being realized? Like, are we really willing to continue paying this price? And ultimately, the answer was no. And it wasn't just no for the community, but it was no for the dam operators as well, because they recognized the damage that was being done to the river and what would need to be done to bring these dams into compliance. You know, dams are not pyramids. They're just a piece of infrastructure. And so just like we need to maintain our cars and our roads and our plumbing, we need to maintain our dams as well. And when we don't, it gets very expensive very quickly. And that's really the case of what happened with these dams is that the bottom line was the amount of money it was going to take to upgrade these dams for their new license to address the water quality issues that were damaging, you know, not just the river, but also drinking water supplies for a lot of the communities that were in the area. And the fact that the dams really serve no other purpose. They're somewhat unique in that way. Many dams do hydropower and flood control and water supply. These do not. They didn't supply water to any of the communities. They don't provide any flood control. They were purely for power production, and they didn't even really produce that much of it. They produced about 2% of the power company's total power portfolio. So ultimately, they realized it just didn't pencil out for them to keep these dams in place. It was costing them more to have these dams than they were actually earning in revenue from the power, about $20 million a year is oh, what wow. the forecast would have been. Wow. So it was clear for them. It was really clear for them. And so at that point, huh. it really didn't become a question of whether the dams would come down, but how the dams would come down. And that is part of what also took a lot of that 20 years worth of time. You know, folks may remember that we got very, very close to having an agreement that would have been supported through Congress to remove the dams in about 2012. And then at the last minute, you know, just because of a handful of congressmen, the whole agreement that had been negotiated through tribes and farmers and cities and agencies completely fell apart at the last minute. And at that point, people really realized, you know what, if we're going to do this, we need to do it ourselves. We can't wait for government to step in and be supportive right. here. The politics was just too unpredictable yep. and too unreliable, but the damage continued to occur as all of this time was going by, you know, like um, there was a cost to delay. So ultimately the Klamath River Renewal Corporation was formed. It's a nonprofit entity that was specifically formed to take the license and ownership of the dams from Pacificor, the power company that had owned them, and then be responsible for their removal. And that's what's happening right now. So I sit, I actually have a, a seat as an alternate on the board of the Klamath River Renewal Corporation. And, you know, the board's job is to provide oversight for this renewal pro or the removal process. And I'm really pleased to say that we are on track and on budget this summer. The first of the four dams is already in the process of being removed. So COPCO 2 was breached earlier this summer. I think it was back in June, actually, when it officially, you know, had a bulldozer start taking pieces of concrete out of the dam. And it should be fully removed, you know, pretty soon, you know, in the next few months. And then, you know, the really exciting part of the, re the removal is going to happen. And, and that's going to be starting in the winter when the last three dams will be breached almost simultaneously 
And as water is draining out of the reservoirs and moving a lot of the sediment out from behind the dams, you know, that'll be really the river beginning its own recovery process. It'll just be this beautiful river-driven recovery. And ultimately through next summer, the rest of the deconstruction will take place. The facilities will be removed, you know, all of the rebar and concrete and other parts of the structure, the earth, you know, one of the dams is an earthen dam will be moved and actually put back in the place where the earth had been taken to construct oh, wow. the dam in the first place. Um, so there's just, it's such an exciting moment. It's been so long in coming. And I think for many people in a way, unbelievable because yeah. just the advocacy has had to be so long, so persistent, so committed. Um, it's just amazing that it's really come to fruition. Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who has earned an exceptional reputation over the past few years in the fly fishing industry due to the popularity of their telescopic fly rod roof racks and statement-making artist series apparel lines. Their latest release for 2023 is the Jerian Universal Bike Rack Packing System, a brand new way to transport your fly fishing and outdoor gear. The Jerion will give any modern bike the ability to bring 30 pounds of gear with its front and rear articulated racks. Whether you ride a full suspension mountain bike, an e-bike, or even a carbon fiber road bike, the Jerion will get you and your fishing gear further faster and have much more fun along the way. I can tell you this has been a big struggle for me. I've been riding my bike, uh, both road bikes and mountain bikes, and had lots of issues over the years packing my gear, whether that's uh, crappy uh, storage on the back or a trailer that's just too big and bulky. So I'm excited to share this packing system, which is going to make it way more convenient and accessible to get out to the places you need to go. You can learn more about how Trestle is transforming the way you access your favorite water, backcountry, hunting zones, and camping spots. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now and be the first on the water and the farthest upstream and away from the crowds. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. It's a good summary. And again, you know, out of those things, you know, I, I kind of think you know, what do you take away from this? What do people take away? And I think you said it perfectly is that I think the farmers, you know, the, the fishing, the, the tribal is that it's always been a lot of the pointing fingers, right? Whether that's mm -hmm. there or anywhere in the country, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, the farmers are pointing the finger at the loggers or whatever it is. Right. And mm -hmm. so, but that's never going to be success. And what you're saying here is that literally the farmers, everybody's on kind of the same team. And that's probably, you know, why this is happening now. Well, let's take it back to first, just where we're talking about. So Iron mm -hmm. Gate Dam, break down the, these dams, where they are in California, and then how that fits in the picture that you explained about the forest and the the fields and the stuff like that. Yeah. So these dams are really, um, you know, I would say they're really at this transition point of the Klamath River where it's moving more from the, you know, the flatter kind of more shallow gradient so it's not tumbling down like huge cascades it's moving from that part of the watershed into the steeper forested part of the watershed it's happening really right at the california oregon border so the dams you know kind of straddle the geography of california and oregon the most downstream dam iron gate is in california but there is still a you know a few hundred miles upstream from the the mouth of the klamath so they have a big footprint, you know, dams, they interrupt a river, but they compound each other. So it's not like one plus one plus one equals three. It's, it's almost like a multiplier effect. And, you know, 
so the idea that we're taking out a series of dams that are all located, you know, one after the next, after the next in this river is really going to have a huge impact on the river itself when it starts its own recovery. Um, yeah. And then, like I said, when you get past Iron Gate Dam, that's when you're really starting to get into the, the forested area of the Klamath River. That's where, you know, in these downstream areas, like the Yurok tribe has their ancestral lands, the Karuk tribe, the Hoopa, Quartz Valley. So there's a number of different tribes downstream. And then as you get closer to the sea, there's actually another major river that comes in, the Trinity, which has its own story and its own issues. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> you right. know, I think it would take a whole other podcast to talk yeah. about. But it, it's just such a, a varied and beautiful and, and in many ways, I would say rugged, but not wild necessarily, because there are so many people, but I think there are people, you know, the difference to me is they're really people who have found a lot of ways to live kind of in the land and with the land instead of from the land, if that makes sense sense yeah, you know when i think about the san joaquin and the central valley I, right. I feel like those are communities that live from the land yeah or maybe not so plugged into its natural patterns <laughs> no 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 so and where does this where does the klamath uh, where does it flow into the ocean flows into the ocean in california but just south of the oregon border so we really are talking about you know the pacific coast where you know when people think about um redwoods and you know kind of the damper pacific northwest we're, we're really moving up into that territory it's not the kind of wide sandy beaches of southern california it's really the forested mountains of the pacific northwest almost gotcha yeah this is great yeah it's a huge river and then like you said in the head well you could take into the upper klamath part of the watershed right where you get into you know, I mean, into Oregon, right? In all those areas and those famous waters up there. What? So when you take these out, when these dams are gone here this next year, is the plan to just let, you know, the fish come back? You know, you, you take it out and they will come back. Is that the plan of how this is going to work? Or is there any, like, what does that look like as far as monitoring to see what happens after this occurs? It's a great question. And it's a really exciting question because there's actually a lot of monitoring going on. So one of the tribes I mentioned, the Karuk tribe, is actually working in partnership with other universities and nonprofits. And there is an extensive monitoring program that's looking at patterns of stream flow, water quality, meaning things like water temperature, oxygen, nutrients, but also you know living things like what kind of bugs are growing, what kind of fish are present? You know, how far are they distributed throughout the watershed? And that work is happening now, and it's been going on for years already. And what's wonderful about that is it's actually quite rare to have much monitoring or science that characterizes a river very long before a dam is removed. You know, typically you might see some monitoring within a year. But that doesn't give you a very full picture of what a river looks like because, of course, a river changes year to year and season to season. So this long-term monitoring is incredibly valuable and is going to continue after the dams come out for exactly the reason you mentioned, just to understand what is happening. And it's so important because I think people, it's so important to highlight that whatever river we recover after the dams are removed is not going to look really anything like the river we knew historically. And a lot of that reason is because of climate change. 
you know, when we have different patterns of precipitation, snowfall, when we have more extreme droughts and flood years, all of that is fundamental to how a river grows its living systems. You know, I, I like to say a river really isn't a sum of its parts. It's a bunch of processes, just living processes. So you can't just plug and play. You know, if I put this amount of stream flow in, I've now fixed that part. You know, it's it's not a car. <laughs> it it yeah, is. Right. It's, it's a body. And, it's dynamic. Yeah. And it's dynamic. Exactly. Um, and so understanding how rivers work, why they work the way they do. Well, I think for people who love rivers, there's just the joy of discovery and how miraculous they really are. It is. And that is very particular to a particular kind of person, but I'm one of those people. So I, I yeah, am looking I forward to that myself. Yeah. And you're talking to a bunch of, you know, thousands of people who are just like that, right? We talk about that all the time, just with fly fishing, the, the fact that it's really not about the fishing. It's about being on the water, observing you know, and that whole process, that's what's cool about, you know, fly fishing and just being outdoors on the river. Um, so Absolutely. this is great. So basically you have, you know, like you mentioned, temperature, nutrients, all these things you're monitoring and, you know, you'd expect. So, well, first these dams, were they complete uh, barriers? So no fish have been up above these since 1918. Is that the, is that the case? No anadromous fish. I mean, there are resident yeah, fish. Exactly. Yeah. So no, no fish have been up there since 1918. So when we remove these, I mean, were salmon Chinook getting up to the base of these dams? Do we expect them to go into the upper basin and see them spawning in this next year, potentially? We do expect them to move upstream. Um, they would go all the way up to the base of Iron Gate Dam. And we know that because there is the Iron Gate hatchery that was just downstream of the dam. And so, yes, fish would make it all the way up there. And we have many years of data of fish counts about what fish were going into what tributaries and how many fish were going back up to the hatchery. One of the exciting things, you know, we talk about climate change, we talk about water. One of the other reasons that the Klamath River was so productive, you know, I keep coming back to this, these groundwater fed springs that really were the, the lifeline of the river. Not only are they kind of nutrient rich salmon superfood, but they're cold and they are reliably cold because while, you know, we're experiencing climate change and global warming on the surface, it actually doesn't take that much energy to heat up the air around us, but it takes a tremendous amount of energy to heat up the physical earth, especially at depth. And so because a lot of the Klamath's water comes from the ground, it is climate resilient. It is resilient oh, wow. to heating. It will stay reliably cold. And that's what hmm. makes rivers like the Klamath and other places where groundwater fed springs are a big part of their hydrology so important for us to focus our conservation because these really are going to be, you know, the port in the storm of climate change for our cold water species like salmon. And as we do this work, being able to protect and enhance these rivers, this is going to be the lifeline that then gives us the chance we need to then deal with climate change on a bigger, um, more systemic level. Right. Yeah. Because that is one of the questions and challenges with climate change is the fact that we know this is going on, but what do we do, right? Mm -hmm. Do we create more reservoirs because that's going to store more water or do we, right? Like all these things are coming up, but what you're saying is essentially this is, you're creating a natural system in that river because of the groundwater is going to do it, the work for us or some of it, right? Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're talking about? And finding those places maybe is what we need to do? That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I think it's also important to recognize how we can replicate the service of reservoirs without replicating a reservoir itself. So for example, I mentioned these were hydropower reservoirs. 
When we remove them, we're not necessarily removing power from the communities that had been supplied from these reservoirs, but instead, what the power companies were realizing was that it was more cost-effective and more emissions-friendly for them to pivot to other kinds of renewables. So as solar is growing in scale, as wind is growing in scale, it's cheaper for them to rely on those kinds of power for production in these kinds of places. And though, you know, solar and wind are not without their own impacts on the environment, when we think about climate change, you know, what is what is the issue with climate change? It's greenhouse gas emissions and reservoirs can be a source of greenhouse gas emissions and specifically methane, which is like a super insulator for our atmosphere. So when we remove reservoirs that produce methane like these Klamath reservoirs did, we're also making progress in the space of climate change as well. But another issue, you know, you touched upon just very briefly was storage. And mm, and this is yeah. something, you know, again, it's not so relevant to the story of the Klamath because they weren't water supply, but it is relevant to the story almost any place else you look, especially throughout yeah. the American Southwest. And so when we think about storage, we really need to think about, you know, there are some dams that fulfill a practical purpose, but there are many that don't. And there are other ways we can store water, like groundwater aquifers that, you know, we're also kind of tapping and pumping unsustainably, but have many, many times the capacity of any reservoir we could have possibly built. You know, in California, we have about 1500 reservoirs in California alone. So, you know, the best spots are taken. If we were to build another reservoir and, you know, my background in, in research was in civil engineering. So, you know, I really did believe maybe there was a way to build our way out of these issues we've created. But, you know, when somebody says, well, we have 1500 reservoirs of all different shapes and sizes, and they store all these different amounts of water. The idea that the solution to our problem is going to be the 1501st reservoir, it just (laughs) doesn't add up. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's a good point. It's almost like, yeah. It's kind of back on the hatchery fish thing, right? You mentioned there's a hatchery at the base of Iron Gate is that, you know, at some point people thought, yeah, the hatcheries would take us out of the problem. Like, exactly. Of, yeah, we're, right. We're killing all these wild fish. Let's just do more hatcheries. But everybody, you know, you realize like, no, that's not going to do it. We got to save the wild fish and let them, like you said, like let them recover and create self-sustaining populations. So I, I want to kind of turn a little bit to overall bigger picture. So we mm-hmm. talked Klamath and we'll come back here a little bit, but American Rivers is celebrating their 50th anniversary. Um, with that coming, I want to talk about, you know, turning to like the Lower Snake River dams. I know this is not in your area, but what would be your advice having been part of this Klamath success? You know, I know that's maybe a much bigger thing because it's, you know, these are, I don't know, right, mm-hmm. big dams too, but... Would you have any advice? What would be a tip you would tell those folks up there? Because it seems like that's got a good movement, but maybe it's uh, <laughs> right. And I know there's a lot of politics there, but what would you, for those, what, what would be your advice? Well, I'm just smiling because I'm imagining my colleagues oh, right. on you that know, project. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think there are some, some shared valuable lessons learned in both of these processes. One is just something we touched on earlier today. Just keep talking keep talking across communities, keep talking across lines, keep talking about the problems and the bottlenecks and the issues that really need to be solved because there are people who are committed to finding solutions. You know, just like I said in the Klamath, it wasn't about taking away energy. It was about replacing energy with a different 
source. And I think the same is true in any of these really big, complicated dam removal projects like this snake. We, if we approach it as a zero sum winner take all battle, it will remain a battle and there is a cost to delay. You really have to ask yourself what you're winning right? <laughs> when what you want is to have it all. But if instead of focusing on winning, you find a solution that's working, that is where the progress can be made. And I think that you like, that's what I see in the people who are engaged in the snake river dams. I think the other thing is just, again, this idea of instead of focusing on the finish is to focus on just staying dedicated to the process. There were many people involved in the Klamath negotiations who did not make it to this day, who were not able to see, you know, really the fruition of all of their work. And so, you know, you said something earlier about what we need is hope. And that really struck a chord with me because I remember, you know, that day that I had, I was thinking about those climate change messages we were being given. And I remember literally asking myself, oh my God, is today the day my hope dies? And then I realized it wasn't so much that it died, but it had transformed to faith hmm. because I knew I was doing the right thing. I knew working to restore rivers, working in a way that's compassionate to the communities that depend on them for any number of services, whether that's power or fish or just it's their home. If we're working with that mindset, with that space, with that compassion, I know the outcome will be achieved. And I may not be the one to see it, just like I may not be the one to see the other side of climate change, but I know everything I'm doing every day in this work is moving us in the in the right direction so that when the day ultimately does come, I will have done everything I could to get us there. And I think just working from that place of faith and commitment, you know, you can feel good about what you're doing every day instead of feeling maybe despair that you haven't reached you know, kind of that one day that we're all working towards. Right, right. This is amazing. Yeah, I, it's pr such a big topic. You know, I mean, there's nothing bigger than climate change, right? Like this is the biggest thing for the planet, for the people. And it's really interesting because I've been doing a lot of research, well, just watching documentaries, especially yeah. Kim Burns. And you mentioned it yourself, civil rights. It seems like this is one of those big pivotal periods in, you know what I mean, the country, the world because I and I go mm -hmm. back to some big stuff, right? Think of the Revolutionary War, right, with this country. You think of the the Civil War, right? Every it seems like almost every hundred years we're coming to these things. And then now, you know, we're at this place where it seems like, you know, civil rights and now climate change. Do you feel like like how big is what you're doing, American Rivers with these dams? I mean, do you see that the big picture or are you more in your world of like we gotta remove these dams? That's the focus. You need to stay focused. Like, what's your take there? Because it seems like this is pretty massive, the impact of what we're talking about here. It is pretty massive. And actually, I give a lot of credit to Tom Kiernan and the rest of the American Rivers organization, because prior to me joining American Rivers last fall, you know, the whole organization really went through a reckoning. Tom Kiernan joined as its president about two years ago. And the reckoning was, was with this question of why, to what end, right. you know, what what are we doing? Right. And ultimately what they came up with was, you know, what we call our North Star. And we said, you know, we understand by the, doing the work we're doing with rivers, whether it's restoring a floodplain or removing a dam or providing clean water, we're really working at the nexus 
of three generational crises. And those crises are climate change, biodiversity loss, and environmental justice. And so when we were able to name those three pillars and then explicitly commit ourselves as an organization to those issues, all of a sudden it was just so helpful in clarifying where we should be spending our time. And what I mean by that is now, when I look at a project that my team brings to me or that a collaborator wants to partner on, I ask my question, what is the story of climate change? What is the story of biodiversity loss? What is the story of environmental justice? And how are we improving the odds in each of those spaces by doing this project? And if we don't have a good answer, then that's not where we're going to spend our time. And it doesn't mean that it's not a good project. But I think to your point, you know, I think there's really only one truly non-renewable resource and it's time. And so I just want to make sure that where I'm spending my time, my political capital, my professional capital, that I'm doing it in the place that makes the most difference for these most important issues. So, you know, I think that's a very long answer to your question, but the short answer The short answer is, I think about it every day. It is fundamental to everything we do. And that is part of also why I just feel like this is the right place for me to be. Today's episode is sponsored by Jackson Hole Fly Company. They've been designing and manufacturing fly fishing equipment and flies since 1978 in their home base in Wyoming. In 2020, they launched jhflyco.com and started selling gear directly online to anglers all over the country. You can go ahead and right now and check out their huge selection of uh, rods, reels, fly lines, tools, accessory. Uh, and right now, if you go to jhflyco.com swing, you can get 25% off your first order. Just like Amazon, they'll ship everything directly to your door, saving you time and money. But unlike Amazon, you'll be supporting a great fly shop and this podcast by simply grabbing a few uh, products, maybe just a couple of flies. Check it out. There we go. Get free shipping right now. All orders over $50 and uh, get that 25% off your first order. jhflyco.com slash swing. Okay. Back to the show. So climate change, biodiversity, and environmental justice. Talk about that a little bit. What is that exactly? How does that fit into this picture? Well, that is a place of very difficult and complicated reckoning. You know, I don't think it'll surprise people. American Rivers is a very white organization. It's a white-led organization. You know, it's and that's not uncommon in conservation. It's not uncommon in the conservation space. And there are very um, Eurocentric ideas about conservation that we're having to undo. And specifically, one, you know, the idea that these natural spaces are resources for us to profit from or benefit from, rather steward and enhance. But also just that there is some fundamental, like, difference between people and nature, that somehow nature is about like reserving and preserving a space and that people are not part of it. You know, first of all, that really erases millennials of generations of people who were here (laughs) stewarding these environments before, you know, settlers ever came. And also it's just not, you know, it's not an inspiring vision. Like, what does that mean? Where are we all supposed to go if that's really the vision of conservation that we're working towards? Because we need a home too. Yeah. (laughs) We need healthy homes. And so turning that concept on its head, recognizing that people and the environment are all just part of one thing and that 
you know, making healthy people means making healthy spaces, making healthy rivers, having access to them, having their homes be in places that, you know, where we can allow rivers to flood in floodplains and not living rooms because we're mindful of what they need (laughs) in order to be living rivers. You know, in that way, we are protecting and enhancing people's communities as well. And so, you know, really explicitly addressing the fact that we have placed historically underserved and people of color in floodplains, you know, or in places where there is poor environmental conditions and that, you know, that is its own form of racism. Thinking about that mindfully as we think about the projects and the work that we're doing, that's really how environmental justice plays into conservation. That's huge. Yeah. And and I think of some of these, you know, these flooding events, right? Whether that's California or around the country, right? You see, and again, that that all ties into climate change because, you know, you hear these as the climate changes, we're seeing more floods, more of these extreme events. And then the people that are, you know, disproportionately getting hammered are the people of lower incomes, right? Because they're in those places. So this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Talk about American rivers. Give us a little brief history. Let's take us back because we're talking 50 years. Where does that take us back to the start? And then tell us, I know you probably don't have all the history, but just give us a short snippet. How did this thing come to be? And then how has it evolved over the years? Well, you know, I think it helps if when we think back what was happening 50 years ago, 50 years ago puts us back in the 1970s. And, you know, that was the time before we had the Clean Water Act, before we had the Environmental Protective Agency mm. and the, well, we had the agency, but not the Endangered Species Act. And we also had that Cuyahoga River, which caught on fire in the middle of Ohio because it was so polluted. And not to draw a direct line between the Cuyahoga River and American no. rivers, but just to say in that time, there was there another kind of awakening, reckoning amongst many people about the value of rivers and what we've done to them. Yeah. And and how important it is to really start mobilizing a coalition of people to advocate for their protection and restoration. So, you know, it was really in that space that American Rivers was born and, you know, focused on rivers. And over time, this organization has grown tremendously. So now we work on a number of different fronts. You know, nationally, we have programs that focus on floodplains and clean water on river protection, which is like wild and scenic rivers or outstanding waters of the U.S. We have, you know, just river restoration and dam removal programs. We have a hydropower program because not all dams are going to be removed. But if they aren't, then we should make sure that they support as healthy a river as they possibly can. So really working in all these, I would say, just very practical spaces And then while we have those broad kind of national programs, we also have our regional programs, which is where we're putting a lot of those concepts and policies to work on the ground. And so that's really where I I lean in. You know, I run the California program. We have a Pacific Northwest program, Southeast, Southwest, Northern Rockies. We just launched our Mid-Atlantic and Northeast regions in another year. We're going to be launching a Great Lakes and um, Central U.S. region. So, you know, there is a tremendous amount of work and scaling that's being done right now. We have some very ambitious goals. You know, we have a goal to remove 30,000 dams by 2050. It sounds like a lot, but then when you realize that across the country, we have literally hundreds of thousands of dams and most of them have come to the end of their practical life. They're 50 years old or more. And many of them 
aren't serving the purpose that they were built for anymore. They're just kind of derelict, deadbeat dams. And that's a liability, you know, that's risky for people. So 30,000 dams by 2050, we're going to protect a million miles of river mm. by 2050, and we're going to restore 30,000 acres of floodplains. Wow. And in doing that, we're providing not just room for rivers to do what they do, but then again, we're, we're stabilizing and protecting communities, particularly communities that have the least resources to recover from some of these natural disasters. But we're also, I think, um, we're undoing a historical wrong. You know, part of what we're seeing is damage due to climate change, but part of what we're seeing is damage just due to some really poor choices. You know, when you take a river and you don't even give it space to carry floods that it might have experienced every two years, let alone every 200 years, and then you put a bunch of people's houses behind those levees, right. at some point, bad things are going to happen. And so recognizing that we need floodplains as natural flood protection and recharge, and we need to stop putting people's homes in those spaces. Um, those are ways we can make progress that even if climate change weren't happening, we would still have to be doing that work and it would still be helping people. Wow. Yeah. So that's the picture is that American Rivers is not just a yeah, dam removal program. I mean, this is way, much bigger than that. It is much bigger than that. Yeah. How mm -hmm. can people in 30,000 dams is just mind blowing, right? That goal seems amazing. So, uh, and I know we're talking large, big, small you know, talk about that, these, the big priority dams, you know, we, we may have mentioned a few of them. Are there others on the list that you, that we're just looking at American Rivers has their top, but don't, isn't there a top list of dams that you're kind of targeting? Yes, there are. And it's interesting because when we think about what are the dams we're targeting, we call it our active 150 list. And, you know, we, we implement that in regions. So we have a list that was developed for the Southeast region. We're currently in the process of doing that work right now in California. We launched that project and we're in the middle of doing that as part of a collaboration with UC Berkeley and, um, and other organizations. Um, and what that list is based on is not just the, ecological or environmental benefit that we get from a remo removing a dam, but also just kind of, again, thinking about this environmental justice, the social and political benefit and willingness that we have to really make a difference in these spaces. So that list is currently in development. But what I would say is if people want to engage more or know more, you know, just reach out because this work is happening all over the country. You know, if, if they're interested in California, that's certainly something I can tell folks about. But, you know, this is happening all over the place. There are big dams. We mentioned the Snake River mm -hmm. Dam and there are other large dams across the country that many of my colleagues are working on. But, you know, we're also talking about these small bank to bank barriers that were used for, you know, maybe a single person's diversion that's not even necessary anymore. And those, I mean, they're nameless and countless right. and they matter, but they do add up. It's that cumulative effect. They add up and they matter. So even though it seems like you're removing a small dam, cumulatively, it makes a big difference. And I would point people, you know, for one example is the Eel mm. River in California. That's absolutely the case. We're in the headwaters. You know, there's not just the two Potter Valley dams that are also hydroelectric projects that we're working on to get removed. But there's also headwater dams that we need to address and remove. Um, and those are located 
everywhere. So I would say it's not so much that I would want to provide people a list of dams we're working on, but I'd almost really rather know like, where are they interested? Because I guarantee right. something's happening there that they can help with. And we could just absolutely get them connected to the right space and the right people. Perfect. Love that. So that's kind of the local level. So basically if somebody's listening right now, they're in, whether they're in Ohio or, you know, anywhere around the country, the thing to do is they could connect with American Rivers and maybe find out who the person locally would be. And they can say, hey, you know, what can I do? Let's find some of these dams. Is that kind of what you're talking about here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Because, you know, I think, again, this gets to people's hope. When you think about all that we need to do to fix these problems, it's so daunting. But then when we realize that no one person can do it all, but we can all do our part and that's what's going to get us to the finish, then all you need to do is what you can and it'll make a difference. Wow, this is cool. So going back to Klamath really quick. So where we're at now, you mentioned the dams are already coming out. So talk about that, the next steps from where we are right now and then how is that going to look over the next year? Yeah, well, it's it's going to look messy. <laughs> right. <laughs> to tell you the truth. Right. So, you know, we're in the process of removing Copco 2 right now. Early in 2024 is when Copco 1, JC Boyle, and Iron Gate Dam are going to be breached. It's kind of a wild plan. I'm glad it's not my job. You know, currently what's happening is in the base of Copco 1 and JC Boyle, tunnels are being built toward from the front towards the back end of the dam. Iron Gate already has a tunnel through the dam that's being oh, retrofitted wow. right now, so it can pass all that water. But then it will be somebody's job to carry, you know, literally a load of dynamite into the back of those tunnels. No kidding. <laughs> back out very carefully. Wow. Um, and then, you know, on that scheduled day next year, those tunnels will be blown open. And that's when water will start moving through each of these reservoirs. And the reason it's being done that way is, again, we want to harness the natural power of the river to start restoring itself. So it's mm. going to start moving the sediment that was stored behind the dams downstream. You know, it may seem like a lot, but really, it, you know, the amount of sediment in the dams is equal to about what's one year's annual, oh, wow. you know, kind of sediment source to the Klamath anyway. So there'll be, there'll be a disturbance that first year, but, you know, ultimately the river will reform and reshape itself from sediment it's been starved from for 100 years. And then, you know, there's other work that's already going on. So, you know, when you drain a reservoir, it leaves a big bathtub ring where the water had inundated the banks, mm -hmm. you know, for all those years. And so there's an extensive um, seed collection process underway right now. Again, you know, much of it led by the tribes that's taking billions of native and culturally relevant seeds and plants and those will be used to replant the banks of the reservoirs so that we can really start to um, promote the right kind of regrowth in those spaces. There are active restoration projects that many, many NGOs, including the tribes, are engaged in leading throughout not just the Klamath itself on the main stem, but also the tributaries because the tributaries, again, are just a very, very important part of the Klamath's whole life cycle. And that work will continue. And then, you know, really dam removal is almost just the first step in the broader Klamath recovery. So, you know, we still have things that need to be addressed. I mentioned the upper Klamath and it used to be a massive network of wetlands and now it's a massive network of farms and that has its own issues. There are other fish besides salmon, um, suckers and lamprey that we are also, you know, trying to restore and rehabilitate in the upper watershed. So 
there is a lot of work to be done, but I think the dam removal is really the shot in the arm yeah. that makes the rest of the recovery possible. Amazing. Can people, uh, you know, can we watch this? Is there any, where would you send it? Are there, you know, as this progresses and even can you literally get out to these areas? Like after, could you get on the ground and see this? Mm, that is a good question. Well, I would say if people are interested in going, I would point them actually to the Klamath River Renewal Corporation because they do do tours oh, cool. of these areas. You know, it's an active construction site, so there's absolutely safety and liability issues, but there are ways to see it. And so I, yes, would reach out to the Klamath River Renewal Corporation or they can reach out to me and, and I can get them connected with the right people there. Um, you know, there's parts of the lower Klamath that are accessible to anyone and they can just go out and see parts of the river. As far as the actual deconstruction, I believe that there is actually um, like a video stream of some of that work. And I will double check and confirm. And if I have it, I'll be sure to send you that link so that people can look at it. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll throw in the show notes and, uh, any, and we'll also have some other information here so people can check out. So yeah, and I want to take us out of here in the, uh, we've got a little listener shout out section that we do where we kind of, you know, we get some feedback from listeners. I want to read something from somebody here and then, and then we'll take it out with a little rapid fire round. Does that sound okay for you? That sounds awesome. So we had uh, Brian Sherwood left a, uh, um, you know, he commented on the blog, on one of our blogs, and he said the last part of the podcast, and he was talking about this Yosemite podcast we did. He said the last part of the podcast was some of the most inspiring that I can recall. Love the idea of donating older gear. And he said, I have some older fiberglass rods. With, and he was asking if this would be useful. So basically what this was, and shout out to Brian, thanks for commenting. Um, I did this episode, episode 495 on Yosemite, and it was David Gregory and Greg Nespor. They were talking about fly fishing, but they really got into this Hetch Hetchy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you're probably familiar with that, but they really got into the whole details there, the fact that like literally it's a national park and another dam, right? Or another thing going on. So for you, I guess what would be, you know, and I just want to take this more to inspiration as you look forward, you know, what really inspires you? Because I mean, this inspired this to Brian Sherwood today. Do you take something away from, you know, you know, it seems like this is inspirational for all of us listening, but for you, how do you keep inspired? Mm. Cause it must be some down. There must be some times where you're, you're, it's negative, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I had this setback. I mean, right. Like this one, you know, years. Oh, so when sure. those happen, right. You have this big setback. You're like, oh my God, are we going to lose this project? What keeps you going? Like, where does that come from? It's the people, oddly enough, it's the people. And, you know, you mentioned Hetch Hetchy and actually two weeks ago, I was on a three day river trip on the Tuolumne. So the Tuolumne river mm. is the, the river that runs um, that's the watershed where Hetch Hetchy was constructed. Oh, wow. right, right. Um, and so when you mentioned it, you know, it's people who care and also knowing that even when you're really shut down or laid out in one space, there's always something else you can do. Mm. You know, there's always something that can be done. So, you know, when you mentioned right. Hetch Hetchy and I think about the work that my team's doing, like we're doing the largest zero fill metal meadow restoration in Ackerson Meadow, which is in the headwaters of the Tuolumne River around Hetch Hetchy. We're working with other collaborators to do floodplain reconnection on the lower Tuolumne. You know, just because a mistake was made or a battle was lost, it doesn't mean that it's over. You know, there's right. always tomorrow. And I think that's it. It's just the idea of tomorrow. I'm doing all that I can today. And I have faith that I'll be lucky enough to have tomorrow. And I just look forward to it. Love that. 
Well, we always love to do a few random uh, questions here. So one that I love to ask because I like music. Um, when you're on a road trip, do you listen to more music or podcast, or do you have a like a group or a song or something that you know you you want to shout out to? Oh, I love music, and I oh, will good. say I I think my river music is Michael Francian Spearhead. Oh yeah, yeah, Michael. Oh yeah, yeah that's right. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. I know exactly what you're talking about. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes so we can listen to some music on the way out of here as well. And have you been, as far as the podcast, I know, uh, I mean, there's definitely been, I've interviewed other podcasters who are focused solely on river restoration and things like that. Is there, you know, are you a podcast listener or is there other places people can go to dig into more of this, what we're talking about here today? I wasn't sure if American Rivers had anything or. or oh my goodness. How badly do people want to geek out? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go, go deep a little bit. Yeah. Oh my. Well, I would say, you know, if people are really interested in the environmental justice angle, you could listen to Young Indigenous. The Young Indigenous podcast is a really great podcast um, specific to water. There's a podcast called Water Talk, and that is a, a series. It's really all kinds of water related issues from fish to farms to water supply to climate change. The fisheries podcast deals a lot with fishery yep. science, and I was lucky enough to be invited on that. <laughs> I had to remind them I was an engineer. It's like, are you right? Sure? Yeah, um, yeah. And then, but then I also just love listening to just people's experiences and the and the outdoors. So just like the dirtbag diaries is oh, one yeah. I find really yeah. fun. That's a good one. Um, there's been other podcasts, you know, that deal with things like, um, fire and I'm trying to, oh, I, it's not coming to mind, but I would say they're out there. Um, but the ones I mentioned are the ones I tend to plug into the most. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And we've had, uh, had a recent episode with the, uh, the dirtbag diaries. We heard that story, which was really cool. And I know they're the ones you're talking about as well. We'll put links in the show notes to those so people can check them out. And yeah, I guess, you know, like we said from the start, we kind of did a high level on this, but um, before we head out of here, any other last words on, you know, Klamath or American Rivers you want to leave us with as we, as we kind of take it out of here? Yeah, I would say that most people are surprised to learn that most people live within a mile of a river. And so I would just challenge people like, find your river. You know, growing up, I didn't know where mine was. And it turns out it was like three houses down the block flowing through a little like concrete channel. And I had no idea, but just find your river and be curious about where it's coming from, where it's going and what it's doing. That's so cool. That is, that's a good, that's a good message, right? Because no matter what you're listening to, there's a river. Somewhere. There's a river somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. And, and you can have some impact on it. That's so perfect. All right, Anne. Well, we will send everybody, like we said, AmericanRivers.org. Um, and, you know, and, and remind us again on your email if people want to connect directly with you, if they have specific questions about the California work you're doing. Absolutely. A. Willis, that's A-W-I-L-L-I-S at AmericanRivers.org. Perfect. All right, Anne. Well, thanks uh, for coming on today and shedding some light on all this and all the great work you're doing. Uh, I know uh, definitely people are going to be excited about this because I think I'm going to hopefully keep digging into some of these topics. And I know, I think, in fact, there's been a few, I've, I know at least one episode coming up on Klamath um, from another podcaster who's going to do a, a, a large production on it. So it's going to be exciting when these come out. And maybe we'll check back with you next year and we'll do, maybe we'll do a follow-up with you and, and hear about, how, you know, after the fact, how things are going, if that sounds good for you. Oh, I'd love it. Anytime. All right. Thanks, Anne. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Dave. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. 
please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.